Hallelujah. Father, this day we signal our allegiance as sons and daughters of you and as the ambassadors of Jesus Christ by declaring that he is our King and our Lord and he has defeated us through his hand of mercy on the cross. He has subjugated us once rebels, sinners, enemies of the Almighty by causing our hearts to bow before Jesus Christ, by taking out that heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh, by transforming us through the renewing of our minds as we heard the word which granted unto us faith in the first place, by the Spirit's use unto regeneration and the saving of our souls, and continues to sanctify us, to cause us to be convicted of sin, to repent and to leave behind that which does not reflect our Savior and to exchange it for that which might bring him more honor and glory. We signal our allegiance to Jesus Christ in declaring that he is the sole owner and sovereign over the kingdoms of this earth. From the very beginning till the end of this era of history, it is Jesus Christ who alone is the sovereign. This world and the entire universe, all the created existence is his realm. And the reach of his realm is where His law and decree stand and must be obeyed. And we declare that our, with the confessions and our own reassurance of soul that the day of reckoning where all must stand before Him and answer with respect to their obedience will come. And every king and every ruler, and every pauper, every prince, every traveler, every sojourner, every rich person, all the poor, will stand one day before that great throne of judgment and must answer to the Sovereign in light of His will. And we, Lord Jesus, plead only the blood of that same King on that final day. The King who stooped so low to take on flesh, be born as an infant in the manger, to give His own body, His incarnate body, upon a tree as a substitute, payment for our sin. It is to him, this great king who stooped so low and was ascended to be Lord of all, that we stake our claim of eternal life and hope for the future. We declare our allegiance and faithfulness. And it is to his law we seek to obey. It is to his word now we turn. And as we do so, would you open our hearts to receive the glorious instructions of the infallible and forever word of God, which reveals to us the glory of Christ and his gospel, and lays out the way wherein we might glorify Him by walking in a manner worthy of the call. And all of this, that your kingdom might advance, your church might grow, and that we might be encouraged and edified to be transformed further into the image of Christ our King and Lord. In His name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What an incredible privilege at the cost of the Incarnation and the work of Christ on Calvary that we share in today, our reason for assembly, the worship of Jesus Christ and the consideration of the revelation of Jesus in His Holy Word. Would you turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 1? And we'll have three texts today. Our first text we'll stand for the reading of in a moment. That would be Matthew 1, 18 through 25. The title of this morning's message is A Son of David, and descending angels, a son of David and descending angels. Who is the son of David of whom we speak today? It is Joseph, the earthly father by adoption of Jesus, 
and the betrothed to Mary, her would-be husband. We pick up on the story of Jesus and the story of Joseph in the same passage in Matthew chapter 1. The aim of this morning's message is to behold Jesus revealed through the ministry of Joseph. We don't often think of Joseph having a ministry, but he certainly did. What is a ministry after all? It's obedience to a calling of God to glorify him by serving him in a particular way. And the ministry of Joseph was along with Mary to be the earthly father by adoption of Jesus and also to provide and protect for his family in the midst of the most glorious, incredible, miraculous, historical moment upon which the hinge of all redemption and history turned, the incarnation itself. And thus we turn to Joseph today and look upon his life and what that might reveal of the glories of Jesus. As you're able, out of reverence, would you stand for the reading of God's Word today? As the congregation stands, we turn to Matthew chapter 1 and consider in your hearing today the powerful and never-withering Word of God in Matthew 1, 18-25. Here are the Holy Scriptures. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So as you recall, in the month of December, I sketched out a four-sermon Advent series entitled Descending Angels. Joel took one of these themes in his great sermon last week, which I highly recommend if you weren't able to hear. Please do your soul good to listen to it on the website or by other means online. We conclude this series today with a fourth in the record of these descending angel moments in the early incarnation years. Today, we record the story of angels descending unto Joseph. We have thus documented that the advent of the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh, being born of the Virgin Mary, was punctuated by the presence of divine revelation, just as Jesus prophesied later to his servant Nathan, namely the heavens open. From now on, Jesus says to Nathan, John 1:51, you will see the heavens open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So when heaven's staircase touched ground in Jesus Christ, the incarnation, were the heavens open? Absolutely. Were angels ascending and descending? Absolutely. And this should be no surprise. Divine revelation and the activity of His agents uh, acting on and fulfilling the very will of God was heightened at the time of Jesus' arrival. Joel's message last week from Luke 2, 1 through 20, recorded that moment when the heavens opened above the fields of Bethlehem and the shepherds saw this dramatically portrayed 
this prophecy of Jesus fulfilled even at his birth as the heavens broke open to reveal a chorus of triumphal angels announcing with innumerable celestial voices and heralding song the glories of a Savior born in the city of the king, that is David, who preceded this, uh, this king of kings, his lowly birth cloths and manger cradle notwithstanding. You'll find him, the angels said, wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger in the city of David, and then spontaneously broke out in the most glorious, on-key, powerful choral arrangement ever that man could ever conceive and more, singing glory to God and, among, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Please. Jesus' words in John 1.51 prophesy furthermore of angelic activity heightened by the occasion of the incarnation throughout his ministry, even as his birth was announced by the same. We have witnessed these agents of God's sovereign decree, angels, ascending and descending, not just to the shepherds, which we heard of last week, but we also heard of them ascending and descending, as it were, to the priest Zechariah, to the Virgin Mary, and now to her betrothed, Joseph. Angels are visiting Joseph three times, four dreams. Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, led by the same Spirit, who miraculously conceived his son, led him to adopt him, Jesus, and to take Mary to be his wife just the same. It strikes me that perhaps Joseph is the most prominent character in the birth narrative of Jesus, who commands the least attention in the imagination and traditions that surround the holiday season, at least in the modern era. Is this your experience as well? You turn on the radio and there's not too many songs about Joseph. You might hear the refrain of Mary, did you know, asking that question and placing the, uh, the meditation of the hearer or the singer in the shoes of Mary. How much did you know at that glorious moment when it was revealed to you that you will be the mother of your Savior? But how many songs contemplate the thought process and the experience of Joseph? How many stories inspired by these events pick up on some historical narrative and give us his perspective? Well, not as many may I submit. Not sure why this is, but I could venture a reason. We live in an era of what I like to call toxic femininity, where radical egalitarianism has heightened the feminist ideal, and thus the perspective and the duty and the calling and the nobility of a faithful father and leader of his home does not necessarily rank very high on the list of cultural ideals and priorities these days. However, not so in the kingdom of God. And it is striking to see that heaven itself entrusted to Joseph the provision and care of Jesus Christ and his mother in spite of an entire regime and king who wanted to stamp out this baby boy summoning all his army to kill every child two years old and younger in Bethlehem. Nevertheless, Joseph was commissioned with the duty and the charge to protect his family. Fathers, husbands, as you read the story of the birth narrative of Jesus, be inspired and challenged by the role of Joseph himself and his ministry, his ministry to guard the incarnate Son of God from the influences and from the rapacious violence of kings of that day. He listened to the Lord. 
He gained strength and confidence from the promise of the angel. And he was obedient to this task. And God blessed him in his ministry. And Jesus Christ was preserved from the predations of Herod and anyone else at that time. And though Joseph may not be celebrated in our traditions, this is not the case as far as the prominence he receives in the record itself. Ironically, the opposite is true of the scriptural account. That is to say, or you could put it like this, no one received more frequent divine and angelic visitations and heavenly dreams than Joseph around the time of Jesus' incarnation. The angels kept showing up at Joseph's doorstep by a dream. Joseph witnessed descending angels on at least three occasions and divine revelation by a dream at least four times recorded in just the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel. These are our passages of consideration today. Now this disconnect is nothing new. Even in Joseph's day, his neighbors and associates, given his, and oh, and also by extension Jesus, they really paid no attention to this family. They considered his ordinary, Joseph, and by extension Jesus, his ordinary vocation or his job, carpenter, his social standing, not very important, his family affiliation, no one that anyone took real notice of, and his residence, an outcast town, Nazareth. They considered all of these and came to the conclusion that of incredulity, incredulity or unbelief, dismissing this family and their son. Heaven's perspective was different. You can sum it up this way. The world looked at Joseph and saw a carpenter. The angel looked at Joseph and saw a son of David. The world looked at Jesus and saw a carpenter's son. Heaven looked at Jesus and saw the second person of the Trinity. Who do you see Jesus as? Joseph's visitation, let us consider it today in light of three things. In the first visitation, you could summarize with this theme, the miracle of the incarnation. Joseph's in, uh, visitation, his experience of angels descending unto him, you could say it this way as we have through the course of this series, heaven's staircase, that is, heaven's stairway, as Jesus prophesied, extended to Joseph, let us consider its significance in light of the miracle of incarnation. That would be that first text. Secondly, in light of substitutionary atonement, the ministry of Jesus, second chapter, verses 13 through 15, and second visitation. And thirdly, the suffering servant call, same chapter, chapter 2, verses 19 and 23. Joseph's visitation, first of all, in light of the miracle of incarnation. Consider our text today in its context. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we have this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus Christ is not just a mere carpenter's son from an obscure Galilee of the Gentiles' town Nazareth, among whom no one very important or influential had arose and therefore no one expected anything to come from that place. No, heaven records the birth of Jesus according to the genealogy and the providence and sovereign decree of God in a long line of hundreds and hundreds of individuals who are obedient to the Lord and preserved by His Spirit's power according to His plan to reveal for Himself in time according to the messianic line a son of David and a son of Abraham. In verse 17, it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. You're going to see a pattern here. We recognize in the authorship and in the biography of Matthew that there is structure and purpose and intent to history. 
In fact, it is God's story that he is writing on the pages as they turn year after year over the thousands of years since creation to now through today in our text. So the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Sovereign history is what we witness in the introduction of Matthew's gospel. That is, God is the author and the finisher of time. And he has ordered in symmetrical and designed and beautiful ways how things will unfold. And this is evident in the record of generations that preceded Jesus. Even his genealogy recorded in detail in verses 1 through 15. But also in similarity of names. This is interesting, verse 16. Who was Joseph's father? Kids, does anyone know? So Joseph was Jesus' dad by adoption, as we, so to speak, as we're saying today. But who was Joseph's dad? Kids, does anyone know? Shout it out if you know his name. Listen to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Isn't that interesting? Joseph's father was Jacob. So we have a father and son, Jacob-Joseph. Does that remind you of another father-son connection? Well, certainly, because we've been studying the connection between Jacob and Joseph all the way back in Genesis. There are similarities in the generations and even in the names for a reason. This indicates to us that it's evidence of the arc of history, A-R-C, arc, a continuous progress or line of development. The names, the generations indicate they're a signature. They are the hand of God evident in the biography of time that indicates there is a continuous progress in the line of events and peoples unto the coming of our Messiah. And saints, as we listen, we can be encouraged. That same hand of God has providentially ordered the generations unto your own birth. Isn't it amazing that God has preserved? Have you ever thought of this? My parents escaped all, you know, probable causes of death before I was born, and their parents before them, and their parents before them. If you had have rolled the dice or betted in Vegas on the possibility of you being here a thousand generations ago, one might ask, what would be the chances? Well, certainly not enough that anyone but a fool would wager on that, on that reality. Nevertheless, by God's sovereign hand, and not by chance, you have been preserved by the line of God's purposes through the ages unto today. This is the same way that God has preserved the record and the lineage of the messianic line unto Jesus Christ himself. And this is true because God is the author and the finisher of our redemption and our lives. He is the sovereign over history and history is the record of his providence, his decree, his will in time. And we see evidence of this in our text today. At the time of Joseph's visitations, his categories for understanding his experience were fairly small, but they were about to get widened. His perspective was going to open up. Perhaps he would see that just as the father-son connection of Jacob and Joseph of old was marked by special revelation by dream and by angels descending in visitation, Jacob's ladder, and by temporary residence in Egypt, Joseph, so the same kinds of events would accompany Joseph himself, Jesus his son, Jacob his father. And so we see this pattern and these parallels. 
not just sovereign history, but sovereign revelation awakens Joseph's perspective to what's going on. We see this in verse 18 with this first visitation. Angels descending, coming down, as it were, the staircase, that connection through the incarnation of heaven to earth, visiting this man. Now with the birth of Jesus, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, verse 16, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This is an interesting detail. Joseph, none the wiser, had not realized at this point that that which was conceived in the womb of his would-be wife, his betrothed, was by the power of the Holy Spirit. At least he had not realized that to the extent that he should remain betrothed to this woman and consider it the highest privilege in all of history to be a part of this sovereign move of God and the family whereby Jesus Christ, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, in perfect union uh, with his human flesh, would be both God and man, fully without mixture, to accomplish the purposes of redemption. You see, Joseph's perspective was not aware, he was not capable of processing such high and holy truths until something changed. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, what should I do? I, I'm, the law of God tells me that if a woman becomes pregnant before the time of the marriage vows, that the right thing to do would be an annulment of the marriage, would not be a marriage in good standing. I'm a just man. I want to follow God's law. You see the categories operating in his head as he considered these, these things? But something happened. Sovereign revelation. And verse 20 continues, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to, in a, to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, not just a carpenter, not just an ordinary circumstance, but a called one according to the messianic line. Do not fear, he continues, to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. An extraordinary birth, an extraordinary conception. At the time of Joseph's visitations, his categories for understanding his experience were limited to his experience, his understanding of the word as he knew it, his creaturely perception. He was just, nevertheless, short-sighted. This evidence, or this was evident by his implicit assumptions. In spite of Mary's direct revelation from the Lord and the miraculous intervention of God revealed to her, it hadn't occurred to Joseph's heart the significance quite yet of what was going on. But it, it, this all would change in this moment when angels descended unto, and an angel descended unto him to give him this special divine revelation. That is to say, it was the personally realized word of God, quickened by the Spirit and delivered by God's anointed agent that gave him heaven's perspective on his calling. When the angel spoke the word of God, to Joseph, suddenly the category for understanding himself in light of heaven's view of things became clear. And saints, there's an application here for us. Yet today, through his anointed agent, God is proclaiming his word of God to us so that we might get his perspective on our life. 
The scriptures say that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Joseph was faced with extreme challenges. It would not be easy to take on the burden of being this woman's husband with the sideways glances, the judgmental stares of all his neighbors, knowing full well that she conceived long before the marriage vows were confessed. And this would be a great scandal to people whose eyes weren't open to the truth of what's going on. Would Joseph, what would give him the confidence and the willingness to take up his cross and follow his Savior, who happened to be an infant baby, even now developing in the womb of his would-be wife? What would give him the strength to take up his cross and to continue? It would be the Word of God personally realized when it was delivered to him by the anointed agent. Now, insofar as the Word of God is accurately proclaimed and rightly divided, even from this pulpit today, by the grace of God, He anoints the proclamation of His Word to deliver to us His sovereign authority and His heavenly perspective that we might do likewise. That is, to take up our cross in the face of challenges, even bearing the weight of false charge, accusation, and scandals of our culture, to say, no, I will stand on my rock, Jesus Christ, no matter what it takes. And I will have the courage to do so and not to capitulate to the pressures of my day. Why? Because I've seen things from heaven's perspective, according to the word of God, as it has been delivered to me. Thus, Joseph can become a great inspiration for us, who likewise, though in different ways, of course, are nevertheless called to take up our cross, the challenge and consistent obedient call to follow Jesus, whatever that might cost in our time. The miracle of incarnation begins to open J Joseph's eyes. As he begins to see his vi this visit, through this visitation, the light of the incarnation, and this comes in by way of the context of this uh, sovereignty over history, God's sovereignty over history, his sovereign revelation, and finally sovereign a purpose, Joseph is transformed. This purpose is the last thing the angel leaves him with, and it is the ground of his confidence. He says, all this took place, or the writer does, Matthew, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It's a quote, I believe, from Isaiah 7, 14. But rewinding a little bit, this, in fact, was the foundation for Joseph's courage as the angel encourages him. As he considered these things, his angel told him, son of David, do not fear, in verse 20, to take Mary as your wife. Why? The rest of the uh, sentence answers. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this, of course, is in fulfillment of prophecy. Emmanuel is developing in the womb of your would-be wife. Emmanuel, kids, which means what? What does the name Emmanuel mean? God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. You see the obedience of this godly man? This just man whose eyes are now open to the word of God? He has seen his experience from heaven's perspective and is taking up his cross and following his Savior, even though his Savior isn't even born yet. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I can't help but contrast the faithfulness of jo Joseph to the kind of negligence of Jacob. 
because we've been studying Jacob. And we noted in the course of Jacob's story that all his kids, it would seem with possible exception of one, were named by his wives. And the wives named his kids according to whatever she was feeling at the time. Not so with the name of Jesus. Jesus was named by Joseph, his father. Why? Because he took seriously the word of God through his angelic messenger, the anointed one who gave him these instructions. You take as your wife, Mary. You name him Jesus. And so Joseph did. Why? Because he was an obedient, faithful servant of the Lord, following God's word. And thus is a good example for us. But the cause for the change, how does one man go to, I'm going to have to divorce this woman, this isn't going to work out, to, I will faithfully take care, even though it's going to cost me a lot and involve a lot of traveling in a time when that would be very difficult and inconvenient, and I will uh, faithfully and consistently take care of my family and so forth. How does this happen? Well, it comes by way of courage. Do not fear, for that which is conceived in her is by the power of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. His name is Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. The gospel gave the courage to Joseph to be obedient to the Lord. And when you consider the great value and the reward and the promises of the covenant of God in the gospel, it will likewise give you the courage to take up your cross, as we said, and to follow him. This, after all, is according to the prophecy we don't have time to turn to today. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's in Isaiah 7, 10 through 14. The Lord himself will grant an unmistakable sign. A virgin shall conceive. Demonstrating his omnipotent power. Extraordinary birth. A virgin shall conceive. This is a sufficient reason to offer to Joseph to follow the Lord and his Savior by adopting him and by marrying his mother in due course. Major point number two. We move from this first visitation to visitation number two. We turn over to the next chapter and we find angels descending to this humble servant Joseph yet once again. So let us in this second visitation consider Joseph's experience in light of substitutionary atonement. We'll venture a definition in a moment. This would be verses 13 through 15 in Matthew 2. Now when they had departed, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, this is after, by the way, the kings, the dignitaries from the east, the wise men had visited and paid their homage to the child. They, of course, were charged by the king of that day, Herod, to report back to him. They themselves were warned in a dream and did not go back to Herod, but they departed to their own country by another way. Nevertheless, under these circumstances, a second visitation from an angel occurs to Joseph. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, this is verse 13b, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and to destroy him. 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Thus, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This, by the way, is Hosea 11.1 1 cited, quote, Out of Egypt I called my son, close quote. Substitutionary atonement. What is it? Suffering and death as sufficient payment of justice due 
on behalf of another. Jesus Christ is being prepared to be the Passover lamb, the substitute who would atone, that is, pay for, the justice that is due his people's sins. And this happens uh, by way of a number of uh, circumstances coming into place according to God's purposes and covenant. And the ancient battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, Joel mentioned in his sermon last week, is coming to a head. Hence the tension, the conflict between two kings, in this case, King Herod and infant King Jesus. You remember Genesis 3.15, the prophecy by way of judgment to the serpent, to the devil, is that there will become a seed of the woman who will crush your head, yet you will bruise his heel. This is about to happen. The threshold of the incarnation is upon us, and with it, the call of Christ to be the atoning substitute. Thus, the powers of hell are getting agitated. This war on the seed of the woman is nothing new. We saw it all the way back, some kind of poignant examples, in Pharaoh's day, where Pharaoh decided that the people of God were a threat in the land of Goshen and said, let's slaughter all of the infant baby boys. An ancient king felt threatened by another possible king in our text as well. And thus Herod issued a similar decree. But in anticipation of this moment, the omniscient God, the one who knows everything, revealed this truth to Joseph and trusted this godly, just, in many ways ordinary man with the care and protection of the Son of God while he was still an infant. Seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. This antithesis, this war declared by Satan on the means of the incarnation, I submit to you has two fronts. Before this moment in history, the battlefront of war against the seed of the woman was preemptive. War was declared on every child in Bethlehem because Satan, even more so than Herod, Herod just an agent of Satan, felt that his kingdom was threatened. Therefore, he wanted to stamp out the seed and the Messiah. And this had happened through ages past. A preemptive war against the very prophesied vehicle of the, of the incarnation, the seed of the woman. Saints, in the hearing of this message today, make no mistake, this war against the seed of the woman continues yet today. It's no longer a war of preemption, preemptive war, but it's a war of attrition that is to reduce by all possible numbers according to Satan's devices and deny, thereby deny the Son of Man the rewards of his suffering. And I submit to you the primary way that this takes place is through abortion, this horrific, satanic attack upon the very means of incarnation. Satan himself well knows that through the womb, and Paul attests to the same, that many sons of glory will come into this earth. And growing, yes, seed of Adam, born in sin, nevertheless, having the opportunity to hear through the proclamation of God's word, repent and believe, and each one of these souls that is born of woman, even today, who hears the gospel, repents and believes, becomes the rewards of the suffering of Jesus Christ. So if the devil can't stamp out Christ and his incarnation, he will certainly continue his war of attrition trying to stamp out the rewards of our Savior's suffering. And he tries to do so through abortion and through the slaughter of the innocent and through the attitude of even our culture today, which takes lightly and frivolously and wickedly and satanically 
the lives of those precious little ones who might grow up and confess and believe and place their faith in the Lord. So there's a reason why yet today a battle rages. It's because history is governed by the very things that God has put in place. There's a heaven to gain. There's a hell to shun. There's sin to be dealt with. There's only one Savior. There's a Satan who seeks to declare war on the purposes of God. And there's the ultimate victor, Jesus Christ, who has defeated him on the cross and will defeat him in history. Nevertheless, although the battle's ultimately won, we see these ba- or the war's ultimately won, we see these battles playing out, even today, on the plane of history. And even in the sinful orientation of our culture, it is nevertheless confirmation, even in the rebellion of the wicked secular sinner, whoever, whatever uh, allegiance they claim, worldview-wise or otherwise, nevertheless, their rebellion is proof that God is the king of history and he has ordered these things. And therefore, the enemy seeks to make war on his purposes. This is all evident in what's going on here in verse 16. Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old (coughs) or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. (coughs) Even this was according to prophecy. But this was the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent coming to a head. Who would win this war? God himself, the sovereign, would win it. But here we have a pitiful sight, don't we? We have one couple fleeing on their way to Egypt with a little baby in tow that holds out hope for the rest of humanity. On the other hand, we have Herod, a powerful local ruler who has the ability and authority, at least provisionally speaking, to wage war on every little one, two years old and younger, in Bethlehem, and so he does. But in the end, the unlikely victor declares victory over Herod. And this wouldn't be the first Herod that God kills. <clears throat> Firstborn son, Exodus 4, 22 through 23. Now there's a prophecy connected with each one of these visitations. Here's the prophecy. And there remained there until the death of, they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Quote, out of Egypt I called my son. Now you'll see a pattern in Isaiah. And this is true of his book. I submit it's true of the whole Bible. And it's true of each one of Joseph's visitations. The visitation is accompanied by a fulfillment of prophecy, something that maybe you wouldn't realize if you're reading Hosea 11.1 in its fullness until it's actually fulfilled in time. Sometimes this is called like seed to flower revelation or progressive revelation. It is a character of the way God reveals his truth to have seed form unto blossoming. That Genesis 3.15 is a good example. Now, you look at a seed in your hand, it's a great analogy, and it's hard to imagine a powerful oak tree springing forth from an acorn. Kids, you have acorns in your yard? Yeah, isn't it awesome? And you guys have oak trees in your yard? Yep, awesome. Isn't it amazing to think that all the power and potential of that oak tree is wrapped up in that seed, you know, no bigger than the end of my thumb? And suddenly, over the years, it bursts forth, Well, this is an analogy that pertains to the way God has revealed himself in Scripture. Things early on in seed form, like Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son, or Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise, uh, uh, crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. Those seed forms are starting to sprout into the oak tree of incarnate fulfillment in Jesus Christ in his life and ministry. And among these prophecies is this firstborn son imagery. 
And it touches upon Isaiah 11.1 1, where the citation is, but also on Exodus 4. Without turning there today, 22 and 23, you could check it out on your own time. But here, God gives instructions to Moses to go and tell Pharaoh, Israel, speaking collectively of a, of a people, is my firstborn son. Let my firstborn son go. And in that uh, imagery, in that identity, God has placed a priority and a relationship and a covenant bond upon his people. He will guard them at all costs. He will secure their escape by a Passover lamb sacrifice. And all who don't submit to that Passover lamb sacrifice, their firstborn sons will die. You see, this is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ pictured in the old, coming into fulfillment in the new. Out of Egypt I have called my son. So what's related to that idea? The prophetic identity of Israel anticipated the birth and exile of another. There was another firstborn son, Jesus Christ. Even the firstborn of the Father, God's one and only beloved son, who himself would be exiled in Egypt, just as Israel who is called prophetically the firstborn son, was exiled. But he himself would also come up out of Egypt. But he would do so not by way of Passover lamb, but as the Passover lamb. So Jesus is retracing the steps of the firstborn covenant son as the firstborn covenant son. And he is picturing is in himself as the latter, as we said before, and as the lamb that this escape of his people out of Egypt will be secured through him. How can you escape the Egypt of sin? How can you escape the Egypt of hell? How can you escape the Egypt of God's judgment? Only if you are in Jesus Christ. Because out of Egypt, I have called my firstborn son. What does it mean to be in Jesus Christ? It means that you trust him as your Passover lamb. And that by the power of His blood shed on Calvary for you, made possible by the Incarnation, you have safe passage so that at the day of God's reckoning, when the angel of death and the judgments of God and slaughter hovers over the land, you will escape because you are in Christ. And you have received your uh, safe passage from the judgment due your sin through the firstborn Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Passover Lamb. All these ideas are wrapped up in what's going on here. And as you put the pieces together, it's starting to flower from that acorn to glorious tree. And what do we see? In the substitutionary atonement theme, we see the seed of the woman versus the seed of the servant coming to ahead, that conflict. We see the firstborn son exiled in Egypt and soon to be called forth as himself the Passover lamb. And we see anticipated redemption via Passover, which would take place in 30-some years, when Jesus himself would go to Calvary to provide the means whereby we might escape from our own Egypt. The ultimate firstborn son called forth from Egypt will go on to be killed as the once and for all Passover lamb. Joseph's visitation in light of these glorious truths. First, the miracle of incarnation, and then we just covered substitutionary atonement. Thirdly, let's consider heaven's stairway extended to Joseph in light of the suffering servant call. And this would be in the same chapter, 19 through to close. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So now you can see how the angels are visiting Joseph in this sequence of events. 
First to tell him to take Mary to be his wife, to stick with her through this pregnancy and birth. Secondly, to provide a way of escape from the sword of Herod by seeking refuge in Egypt. And now to return to the place prophesied where he would reside. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Another guy named Joseph, another dream in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Verse 22. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, so this is Herod's son, he was afraid to go there and, being warned in a dream, dream number four, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, quote, he shall be called a Nazarene. So again, according to this pattern of visitation, dream, and fulfillment, once again, Joseph is entertaining descending angels who reveal to him significant direction and significant fulfillment of prophecy. And what are these things? Well, you, perhaps you could summarize them under a suffering servant call. The calling of Jesus is made more clear even in the place where he will reside. Who is Jesus? Well, in context here, he is three things that I can see from the text at least. He represents hope for Rachel a threat to kings, and veiled glory. Hope for Rachel, a threat to kings, and veiled glory. Right before this text, we have this, another fulfillment prophecy in verse 17. After Herod, of course, has wiped out all these babies, there is, as it were, a cry arising from the countryside of women who cannot be consoled, crying out, weeping, anguish at the top of their lungs from the depths of their heart. No one can comfort them, for their dead children. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, you see a turning of the tables language there. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Hope for Rachel. Who is Rachel? Well, of course, she was Jacob's wife. We read of her in our Genesis series. And why did Rachel lament? Well, she, as a covenant mother, representative of the anguish of the soul of God's people, cried because she was childless. And now all these mothers whose children were slaughtered by the tyrant king themselves related to Rachel in their childlessness now. And they cried out, with the lament of Rachel, weeping with loud lamentation. And of course, the lament of Rachel is not just childlessness, but also death in childbirth. The anguish and pain of Rachel is evident again when she bears Benjamin, of course, in the Old Testament record, and then dies in the process of bearing the covenant son. Is there hope for Rachel, the mothers of Israel who lament in their childlessness, in the death in the pain, in the anguish, in the sorrow, in the tragedy, in the atrocities. There is hope. There is hope for Rachel. The weeping that endures for a night becomes joy in the morning of the resurrection of our Savior. All of this weeping, heard in Ramah, 
this loud lamentation of women like Rachel weeping for their children, refusing to be comforted, would find their comfort in Jesus Christ, the one little child of Bethlehem who escaped this Holocaust. That little child would grow up to take on the burden of sin, to be ascended, declared King of kings and Lord of lords, receive as his inheritance, title deed to all the kingdoms of the earth, and to wield the rod of iron prophesied of him in Psalm chapter 2, and then seen by John, his apostle, in his glorious apocalyptic vision, wielded dashing kings like Herod to pieces. We sang today, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus was Lord at his birth. And as I said before, this wouldn't be the first king that Jesus would kill in his judgment. It wouldn't be the first king named Herod that Jesus would kill. Jesus killed a second Herod who exalted himself as an object of worship. And what happened, as I love to say, the, uh, he became, well, he died and the worms ate him. He became the victim of the lowliest of creatures. The king that once said that he was as powerful as God, well, the creatures, as lowly as a worm, took dominion over that king and ate his corporeal form and turned him back into... He, he became worm food. The guy who received the worship of the people became worm food in the moment because Jesus killed him by the rod of his iron. There will be hope for those who weep. There will be those who are under the thumb of tyrants. There will be those who are unjustly slaughtered and martyred. Right on this wall right here, one of the young people in the church... Uh, pasted together some stories from Voice of the Martyrs. And these pictures over here represent people who are crying and weeping and lamenting because they have suffered or lost loved ones or family members because they live and under tyrants who in the heart of Herod are aligning themselves with a war against the seed of the woman, even today. But every one of the tyrants responsible for the women weeping in Ramah, as it were, and who associate their hearts with the experience of Rachel crying out for their lost relatives and children, they will receive their day of recompense. Jesus Christ not only represents hope for Rachel, those who weep in the meantime, but he is also a threat to kings. He was a threat to Herod. Therefore, Herod, you know, if you're so, why would you be so worried? What do you have to fear from a baby born wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a lowly manger, in a stable in Bethlehem? You know, what, what would you have to fear from a man of obscure birth who resides in Nazareth, in, in the Galilee of the Gentiles, a Nazarene? What good could come out of that land after all? What would you have to fear? Well, the enemy knew what was to be feared that within those swaddling clothes, in that manger, in Bethlehem that night, when his birth was announced by the agents of glory, that today in the city of kings, the city of David, a son is born, a savior who is Christ the Lord, a Messiah, a sovereign, right there, every king that has ever lived and will ever live, if he realizes the truth, will shudder in his boots. Like Nebuchadnezzar, if he refuses to bow before that king, he will eat the dust, he will eat the grass, he will become worm food until he repents and places his faith and allegiance, properly speaking, where it ought to be as second in command under the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. 
All of this is going on. All of this is anticipated. It's prefigured. It's wrapped up in these visitation and in these visitations and the prophetic truth that is conveyed alongside them. Jesus has a suffering servant call, but let that not obscure the fact that he is the hope for those who weep like Rachel, and he is a threat to kings like Herod and Pilate. Jesus took on the veil in his condescension, in his incarnation of humiliation. His glory was hard for the average person to see. Only the eyes of faith or when a miracle occurred were you able to see it. On the Mount of Transfiguration, three privileged witnesses saw his pre-incarnate glory when he shone like the sun. And there were others, namely the guards at the tomb upon his resurrection that were blown back by his very power. There were those that just the presence of Jesus, the great I am, revealed in just a taste, just a smidge of his powerful glory and his divinity were disabled in a moment. Jesus himself said, can I not call the snap of my fingers, so to speak, a legion of angels will defeat this unjust usurper, worldly tyrant. I am here submitting to a greater power still. You have no authority over me, Pilate, unless God, my Father, grants it unto you. And you will die in your trespasses and sins and forever be the victim of the fiery sword of the cherubim of God's holy presence unless and until you acknowledge that fact that I am king of kings and I am a threat to tyrants. Hope for Rachel, threat to kings, nevertheless, veiled glory. Let's finish, or let's close this sermon by turning to Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. Though this prophetic reference is more nebulous and harder to identify in its specificity, that is, he should be called a Nazarene, let me submit that the heart of Jesus' call to reside in Nazareth is a fulfillment of the language of Isaiah 53, which tells us something about the humiliation of Jesus. <clears throat> awake, awake. Oh, excuse me, that's 52. Who has believed, this is verse 1, Isaiah 53, what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. One of the most famous messianic prophetic texts that goes on to declare that Jesus Christ would bear our griefs and sorrows, that he would be stricken and smitten by God, afflicted and wounded for our transgressions, Yet by those stripes we would be healed and our sins atoned for as God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Nevertheless, it took a miracle of sight to recognize him. Why? Because he was a Nazarene. What does that mean? Well, he was someone, as we said before, who was not of noble birth. He dwelt in, he was incarnated in, and he began his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Upon these outcast regions and despised peoples, the prophets had said, upon them has dawned a great light. And so it happened. For those who had eyes to see, they recognized, even when Jesus was an infant, 
that in those eyes he was lured at his birth. And in the hope of this child was their eternal future. Anna, Simeon, Joseph, Mary, and others, even the dignitaries, kings themselves, in some sense likely that came from the east. Nevertheless, for the average person, they did not recognize Jesus. Why? Because leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, these outcast regions, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is Isaiah 9, 1-7. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is why Jesus resided in Nazareth, in the Galilee region. This is why God blessed these outcast regions with the initial light switch of the incarnation and the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, because that also was prophesied. Yet for those who are expecting something different, they did not see. Who is Jesus to us? As we close this message and we close this year, we recognize that in Jesus' ministry, for a time, His glory was veiled. Although that veil would be pulled back here and there, as Joel testified to the angels singing of His majesty from glory, nevertheless, for most, they do not recognize the power, the authority, and the glory of Jesus Christ, even today. After all, the scriptures say, and many men still have this attitude, it's just a Nazarene just a man. Very important. Yes, influential in the West. Oh, we recognize very good teacher. Oh, I think it's better to build a life in a society on the teachings of Jesus probably than anybody else. Grading on the curve, certainly a hero of history. Is this enough? No form or majesty that we should look on him. Cloaked in humility, the suffering and ultimate victorious servant would be conceived in Galilee, born in in a Bethlehem manger, he would escape with his parents seeking polite or seeking, excuse me, political asylum in a foreign land. He would take up residence in lowly Galilee of the Gentiles, being called, in so many words, a Nazarene, as Matthew put it. He would begin his ministry in a region nearby, Zebulun and Naphtali, Matthew 4, 12 through 16. His neighbors would not recognize him except as the ordinary carpenter's son. And the kings of that day would see him as a potential usurper, perhaps a zealot threat. The religious leaders saw him as a troublemaker and a heretic. Who do you see when you see Jesus? Well, the scriptures delivered to us by the anointing of God himself, when they are accurately proclaimed that Jesus Christ is Lord at his birth, that he is the son of David. He was announced by angels. He is the Passover lamb. He is Rachel's hope. He is the threat of kings. He is the king of kings. He is the savior. He is Christ the Lord. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's not just another Nazarene or human being. He is king of kings and Lord of lords, ascended forever, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father until such time as every single one of his enemies will become his footstool. One of my favorite preachers, Joe Moorcraft, is fond of saying, God has two ways of subduing his enemies. One is he subdues them in repentance, and they become his servants forever, willingly as God changes their hearts. 
The second is he crushes them when they die or upon the final day. Yet he will subdue his enemies. Has Jesus Christ subdued you in the hearing of this message? If he has, let us rejoice that we weren't, that our eyes were opened by the power of the Spirit to behold him in his glory and to behold him as our Savior and Lord because the alternative is horrific to the nth degree and it's terrifying thought. Nevertheless, as the extremes of the reality of history play out, we as people have only a joyful and amazing future to look forward to as Revelation itself, the book declares, as we mentioned before, chapter 21, three through seven, that eventually the weeping tears of Rachel and those who can relate to her will be wiped away because the blood of the lamb will wash away all the hurt and the sorrow and the difficulty and the pain and will remake everything, our hearts and the whole world in his image. This is Jesus Christ and this is the power that he wielded in his incarnation and this is a glorious hope of our future and the future of all things as a result of the incarnation, his death, his resurrection and ascension. Let us close this year by glorifying him in prayer as we close this service today. Oh Lord, we thank you so much that Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, the King of Kings, has been revealed to us in the pages of your word. We confess that this is a superior testimony in some ways than even our own firsthand experience. We know this because Peter has told us as much in his second epistle, the first chapter. Better still is the prophetic word in this we have, O oh Lord. What a gracious gift it is. I pray that our hearts would be stirred afresh this next year as we turn over more pages in your scriptures seeking to understand the glories of our redemption. And I pray that your people would be equipped with the confidence to be obedient as your servants of old were upon the revelation of your true and inarguable word. And I pray, Lord, if there are any of the lost in the hearing of this message, that it would shake them to the core, that they would repent and turn to you. That they would repent of their allegiance to any false savior themselves or any other promise and recognize them as nothing but usurpers that will be eaten by worms and judged in hell eternal on the final day if they do not repent. And let them turn to Jesus Christ who took on for a time that veil of humility only to be resurrected and ascended if it could be said in more glory still receiving as his inheritance the kingdoms of the earth and every soul who will be born, repent, and believe, all of the elect, as a rewards of his suffering. Thank you, Jesus, so much that those of us who confess you as our Savior and Lord are accounted among his trophies of grace. I pray that you would add more from our families and through our church family and the ministry of the saints you are preparing in the hearing of this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.